Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Junior Podcast. I'm here with the esteemed Russ Horowitz and Leanne McLean to discuss everyone's favorite difficult to spell but wonderful to say pediatric diagnosis into susception. Today, we have the good fortune of talking about P2 studies. And for those of you who don't know what P2 is, that's the Pempoquist Network that was born out of Toronto. We are talking about one of their studies entitled Diagnostic Accuracy of Point-of-Care Ultrasound for Intussusception, a multi-center non-inferiority study of paired diagnostic tests. This article was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine in very recently, November 20 of 21. I would love to hear some background. Can you get us started, Russ? Sure. Thanks so much, Delia. A little background about intussusception. It's a really common cause of bowel obstruction in kids less than six years old. And of course, if we delay in the recognition of that, that can result in bowel obstruction or bowel necrosis. So long, long ago, before we were all born, they used to use the diagnostic study and therapeutic study, which was reduction to see if somebody had intussusception. But for a long time, radiologists have been using ultrasound. And over the recent past, the point of care world has sort of said ultrasound for intussusception is really great. However, most of the studies have been relatively small with few positives and were done for the most part at single centers. So this is a fantastic study for us to investigate as this is a multi-center study using a number of different providers. The questions that sort of come to mind and the questions that this particular study dealt with are, one, is the diagnostic accuracy of point of care ultrasound performed by pediatric emergency medicines sonologists, non-inferior to that of the radiology-performed studies? And two, what's the agreement between the point of care done by the PGM folks and the radiologists who do those studies? I would like to add in a couple of other details as people start sort of wondering, why would you do this? As practitioners in tertiary care specialty children's hospitals, we have a ton of resources. I have 24-7 bedside ultrasound available and pediatric trained radiologists, but that's not really the case in most places. So is there a way for PGM providers to do this type of study and then feel as if they're pretty confident what their study results show? Because if these are patients who need to get transferred for other facilities for reduction, then that would speed the process. Let's go over the methods of the study. Our population that they focused on was children aged three months to six years presenting with a clinical suspicion for intussusception. And when a radiologist scan was done, those kids were eligible for inclusion. Children who had imaging results from referring facilities for whom the sonologist was aware of those results were excluded. So for design, this is a multi-center, multi-center, I will repeat it again, multi-center, prospective, non-inferiority study for paired diagnostic tests. They refer to it as radiology ultrasounds they call RADIS versus POCUS scans. They included 17 tertiary care pediatric EDs in North America, Central America, Europe, and Australia. The majority were academic, university-based children's hospitals, but there was some community as well as urban academic centers where there was a PDR part of the 
main ER. 12 sites had 24-7 radiology capabilities, and there were five sites that had radiology services only available during daytime hours where you had to call in a tech to get your radiology scans done, which I think definitely adds a group of patients where this kind of study is especially important, as Russ was referring to. This was a study done October 2018 to December 2020, and if the POCUS study would cause a delay in care, it was performed immediately after the RADIS study, with the study synologist remaining blinded to the RADIS results. The study synologists also would record the start and end times of their POCUS scanning and their own confidence rating of their POCUS interpretation as follows. Not at all confident, somewhat moderately confident, very confident, or completely confident, which would be 100%, which is what I would love to be in life. POCUS studies were considered positive for interception if at least one of the following criteria occurred. One, a present of a target-shaped mask that was greater than or equal to 2.0 centimeters in the transverse axis, or the synologist's clinical judgment that the interception would require intervention. If an interception was identified, it was classified as 1. Ilio-ilial or iliocolic. 2. Was there the presence or absence of trapped free fluid? 3. The presence or absence of collar Doppler signal? And lastly, a presence or absence of echogenic foci. The POCUS study was considered negative if there was no target sign, and the synologists judged that this was not concerning for a interception. For the RADIS studies, the impression of the attending radiologist was the final determination of a positive or negative study. There was, which I thought was great, enrolling physicians or research assistants that followed up with the guardians by telephone interview seven to ten days after the index ED visit. Primary outcome was whether POCUS and RADIS correctly detected clinically important interception. And clinically important is defined as an interception that required either radiographic or surgical reduction during or within seven days of that ED visit. And then secondary outcomes, which were interesting and something that Leanne's going to talk about, was there agreement between the POCUS and RADIS scanners for identification of secondary sonographic findings? That kind of brought in our other criteria of the maximal diameter measurement, the presence of trapped-free fluid, if there's a decreased Doppler signal, or if there's echogenic foci. They also kept track for secondary outcomes of the frequency of serious complications, such as peritonitis, bowel perforation, intestinal obstruction, shock, or even death. For their sample size, they calculated that to have a 90% power, they would want 258 POCUS scans and 258 radiology scans. So who did the ultrasounds? In this study, there was 35 different synologists. All were PEM physicians. All had completed either an ultrasound fellowship, an RDMS, or had previously completed at least 20 abdominal POCUS exams with at least one positive interception study. For the scan, they used a linear high-frequency transducer. And they had kind of a stereotypical ultrasound protocol for interception, starting in the right lower quadrant, moving to the hepatic flexure, then to the splenic flexure, and then inferiorly towards the left lower quadrant. So Leanne, can you go over the results for us? Absolutely happy to. So we'll just talk about a few of the results here. And I encourage you all to take a read on the website as well, because there's a lot of meat to this article. They enrolled 262 patients, but actually only included 256 in their primary analysis, making them two participants short of their ideal sample size. Unsurprisingly, for those of us who do point-of-care ultrasound or treat patients with intussusception, their median age was just under two years old, and that's about what we see in clinical practice as well, despite a recruitment age of three months to six years. When we think about, you know, these clinically relevant 
presenting complaints. Most patients in this group presented with concerns of abdominal pain or fussiness in the 82 to 80% of presentation range. But interestingly, 59 patients presented with bloody stools, which is sort of a late finding of intussusception and perhaps suggests difficulty in access or maybe transfer of care to another center after a period of evaluation at a first hospital. Point of care ultrasound occurred prior to RADAS in 248 of the children or 96.9 and they do mention that if they can't get it done prior to radiology performed ultrasound that they are blinded to those results and still tried to do it after the radiology performed ultrasound was completed. So in the main results they had 22.7% of their population or 58 children who had clinically important intussusception and I think this is important because we're not just talking about a positive yes-no test we're talking about is there a presence of intussusception if yes, what type of intussusception, and then moving on from that in terms of its clinical importance. So of those 58, 55 underwent uh, radiographic air enema reduction, and 16 required surgical reduction. Importantly in the results, there were four false positives and two false negatives in the POCUS identified group. In the discussion, I think we should break down a little bit what those were and maybe highlight some of the pitfalls in doing point of care ultrasound for intussusception. When they looked at the overall diagnostic accuracy, POCUS performed really well. Uh, the diagnostic accuracy was 97.7% when compared to RADAS, which was 99.3%. Even with excluding one site that was a really high recruitment of positive patients, the diagnostic accuracy was still 97.5% with a 92.9% sensitivity and a 97.9% specificity. When we think about our ultrasounds, we don't only want to think about can we pick up intussusception, we're also thinking about the use of point of care ultrasound in the context of the flow of the department and the journey of that patient. So one of the things they looked at was the difference in scanning time between these two groups. So the mean, the median, pardon me, POCUS scanning time was six minutes. Median scan for RADIS was 65 minutes with an interquartile range of 40 to 106 minutes. So even when we're talking about this non-inferiority concept, I want us to also take into account the differences in that bedside scan, the time allotted, and what we're looking for. And I think one of the challenges when we go into some of their secondary outcomes is that we're not seeing perhaps maybe a robust enough equivalence between these two groups because we're performing our scans in a slightly different way. So one of the things that they wanted to look at was the measurement of the intussusception itself. And that can often help us differentiate if we're unsure between ileocolic and ileoileal intussusception. And as you know from the description of the study, they sort of defined an ileocolic intussusception suspicion would increase if you had a, a diameter greater than or equal to two centimeters. But that measurement was only available for 26 children in this relatively large group. When we looked at the difference between the measurements between the RADAS and the POCUS, there was quite a significant difference of 0.44 centimeters, but it's actually a really, really small subgroup of this overall group of 256 patients that they looked at. And so I wonder who's not measuring. Is it the radiology is not measuring or is it the point of care ultrasound sonologist is not measuring? Because one of the things they said was, yes, you can look at the measurement or you can just be confident that you have an ileocolic intussusception. So it would be interesting to go in and break that down a little bit more. They also tried to look at some of those secondary signs. So one of the things that they tried to look for was the presence of trapped free fluid, decreased color of Doppler signal, and presence of echogenic foci. And of those three, the most 
in agreement was the decreased color Doppler signal of 95.7% between both groups, and the others were in the 80s in terms of their agreement between the two. Again, the question is, if you're confident you have an ileocolic intussusception, how much time are you spending at the bedside looking for those secondary signs? Versus when you think about those patients where you're not too sure what you're looking at, you may take more time and more effort to think about how you're going to try to make this determination in your head, looking for all of these different findings. Importantly in this study, in addition to being widespread with multiple sonographers at multiple sites, they also did telephone follow-up data. And they were able to get nearly three quarters of the patients in telephone follow-up. That's really important to look at return visits and also to look at rates of complications. And in this group, what they saw was that 7.4% had a return visit within seven days of discharge and 2% or five children had serious complications. And of those who had serious complications, all were quickly identified by point of care ultrasound as clinically relevant intussusception or ileoileal intussusception at their initial visit to the emergency department. One of the challenges when we look at the serious complication table in the uh, appendix is that it's unclear to me whether the complications are a result of progression of disease or the complications are a result of the intervention required to reduce the intussusception on the first presentation. So if any of you out there know that, I would love to hear about it. Please just send us that information because that would be really neat to see. Lastly, we'll talk a little bit about that inter-rater reliability. So they looked at 20% of overall scans and they had two sonologists review them in a blinded fashion and they were looking for a binary interpretation of findings. There they found Cohen's kappa was 0.835 and for ordered level 3 interpretation, the weighted kappa was 0.747. So I'll open it up to discussion right now. I would love to chat a little bit about a couple of the things through this study, but I think it's a really interesting look to how we can use point-of-care ultrasound in our intussusception patients. I want to thank Leanne for giving us such a robust description of the details of the study. I think the thing that I take away from this is that point-of-care by expert providers is really very good to both rule in and rule out disease. So although not perfect, I think it's really very good. And that's what my takeaway is that I can use, and people who are experienced providers can use point of care to help us identify those who have interception, and maybe not perfectly, but those who don't. And that might help us streamline the care, whether that be in our own hospitals or for transfer. Maybe that's a little bit of an overreach, but I like to be optimistic. For me, there's sort of two real big take-homes to the study. I think that one is when you look and break down the false positives and false negatives in the point-of-care ultrasound group, two of the false positives were described as thickened ileum, ileitis, presence there of sort of inflamed or edematous bowel. I sort of think about this two ways. In the discussion, they talk about how this could be a self-reducing ileocolic intussusception, which as we talked about before, before, you know, historically has not really been taught as something that happens very frequently, although some retrospective studies suggest maybe it happens sort of in around 10% of the time, although clinically that's not how we act when we find an ileocolic intussusception. I think one of the other things to think about, though, is this is a really, really big pitfall when you're learning to scan. Terminal ileitis is often mistaken for intussusception when you're learning to scan, and so thinking about using this in the right patient and really using some of those secondary signs and visualizing your area of concern 
concern in multiple planes will help to avoid this pitfall. And it's hard to know where those came from. In addition, they also had false positives that were measured as smaller than two centimeters or equal to two centimeters that were called a positive ileocolic. So just to have that in your mind as well, recognizing where these cutoffs come from and how they play, I think is really important. And then in addition, that differentiation between ileoileal intussusception and ileocolic intussusception can be challenging for some people and recognizing that not all ileoileal intussusception will be self-reducing. If there's a lead point or if it's persistent, there is a risk that reduction is required. But to me, I totally agree with you, Russ. The really exciting thing about this study is that we can think about how we can apply point-of-care ultrasound in the flow and management of our patients. And if we scan and it takes us, let's say, six minutes, we're able to pick up an ileocolic intussusception. We're confident in that based on the history, the pretest probability, and what we're seeing on the screen. We can have that conversation with our radiologist. We can book that aeranima suite sooner. We can treat that patient's pain in a way where we recognize they're going to head downstream for treatment. And I think that that's really exciting when you look at the studies coming out of South Korea on the flow and management of intussusception in the emergency department. This just sort of adds to that. And I think it really is a great study to support the use in my center of doing POCUS first. And I think if you're in a center where you're seeing a lot of patients and you don't have access to radiology and you do need to transfer for these downstream tests, really sort of emphasizes the fact for some of these patients, you can sort of move things along in a faster way at the bedside by making this determination. Yeah, I totally agree. And I love that you brought up that teaching point about we have always kind of gone through the clinical discussion of intussusception that ileocolic does not self-reduce. That is why you need to address it. Reading more of the literature, there is a 10%, 12% chance that it's going to, even the ileocolics will self-reduce. And so it has definitely led to me even teaching it and using different language when I'm providing just kind of basic pediatric intussusception education. That's a really good point. Leanne, and I definitely I love what you're saying about the downstream effects of point of care, because the reality is, as Russ and Leanne and I know, based on our institutions, we have a lot of resources and we are very lucky in that way. But that doesn't mean that there's not ways to use point of care ultrasound, even in an institution where you have 24-7 radiology, in order to help your patients have a more speedy and kind of patient-friendly encounter and experience. So using point of care can help with workflow and the length of stay in the ERs, as we've seen with lots of other studies regarding pelvic ultrasound and other diagnoses as well. Yeah, I think that's right, Delia. And I think that the one of the things that I would say as well is think about this in recurrent abdominal pain as well, right? you know, reassessment and sort of adding this as part of your algorithm and how you're going to treat these patients and thinking about it in that recurrent way will probably add value too. I think it's really hard for us to know if these were self-reducing or if it was just a pitfall. And that to me makes me a little nervous when authors sort of say like, this is what we assume happened because the reality is it could have just been mistaken terminal ileitis. I also think it's really interesting that they talked about secondary signs. My fellows and people that I teach, I love to talk about how secondary signs can be primary signs. And so the fact that they actually both discussed them, defined them, and compared a POCUS scan versus a radiology scan. In this case, they were focusing on how these secondary signs were going to make it less likely to be reducible or it's going to be a more challenging reduction. But I still think secondary signs are very helpful, especially for people learning POCUS for their diagnostics. And for this paper, one... I'm not sure I'd call it a limitation, but one can consider all of these were expert, expert synologists. And one of the criticisms of point of care, you you don't have all experts performing these scans. And so I think this is a wonderful study to show that it's not inferior, 
But another study idea for any of you fellows out there is redoing the all comers in a multi-center environment to really get assessments of what it would be like across the board. Take-home points are the diagnostic accuracy of POCUS for the detection of clinically important interception is non-inferior to that of a radiology scan when performed by sinologists. The inner rater reliability for POCUS studies was high. The agreement between POCUS and radiology scans for secondary sonographic findings was high. And as always, further studies are needed to compare some of the things we discussed. For example, expert PEM sinologists with just PEM-trained physicians in making this diagnosis. We hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. If you want to check out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org. And I hope you guys are all having happy scanning days out there. I feel so warm inside.